1: This is the Starship Sofa. Everybody, welcome, hello, and welcome to show 187. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Yes, still reeling in the fact that we have been nominated a second year running for Hugo Ward, best fanzine, how cool is that? And we've actually been nominated as well for some Parsecs Award as well, so, oh, rather, rather nice and rather sweet, excellent stuff. What's coming up in today's show, we have The Graphic Fan by Fred Heimbaugh. Then, main fiction is Larissa Mishov by Lucia Shepard. Then we have Michael Swanick's How to Run a Con. And at the end, there's a little promo for Tales for Canterbury, a little anthology that's been put together for the New Zealand earthquakes. So do look out for that, a very good cause. Before we get into the main show, the main fiction or everything like that, a big thank you to Josh. We had Invaders boarded the Starship sofa the other day there. Yes, got a virus on the site. And do you know what I mean? When that happens, or if that had happened a few... Oh, I don't know, a few years ago when it was kind of just me and I wouldn't know what to do. Do you know what I mean? The site would have been down, that would have been it. Josh took control there and evicted, expelled, just got rid of those viruses. So, Josh, you know, what I, mean? I, I did mention to Josh that, you know, his name has been mentioned in the ship's log and he will go down as a hero. Josh, thank you so much, sir. Right, let's crack on. Fred Highmore. Fred, graphic fan.
2: Hello, sofa beings. Fred Heimbaugh, the graphic fan, is here, greeting you as usual, on behalf of all the peace-loving people of planet Earth. I'll get to the main topic of today in a moment, but first I'm obligated to acknowledge the big news of the comic biz. Superman has renounced his American citizenship! I guess the publisher wanted to draw attention to the 900th issue of Action Comics, and they succeeded. The political implications got the chattering classes chattering, even among those who don't normally notice comics. Superman bores me, and this political debate bores me too, partly because the story's sting was removed by the way they carefully balanced the partisan implications. Conservatives can hate Superman's lack of patriotism, and liberals can hate the story's thinly veiled rebuke to President Obama. But it's not the particular message so much as the presumed attempt to deliver one that bothers me. Why should we care what these writers think about politics? They should do their job, which is to tell interesting stories populated by compelling characters. If they've done that in issue number 900, which I have not read, then they should be satisfied. As the old saying goes, when you want to send a message, you should use a telegram. Now for our main topic, French comics. What is French culture? It's cosmetics and haute couture. It's high fashion and government-subsidized cinema featuring couples fending off ennui with long philosophical discussions in the nude. It's sinfully expensive Louis Vuitton handbags and freshly baked baguettes. It is not graphic novels. French culture is right near the bottom of the list of the ones simpatico with graphic novel production. When we think of graphic novel powerhouses, we think of American dynamism or Japanese eclecticism, not French decadence. That contradiction is our focus today. French comics are inherently fascinating, much like jumbo shrimp, plastic silverware, or military intelligence. French comics go all the way back to a French-speaking Swiss named Rodolphe Topfe, who worked in the early 1800s. Some consider him to be the father of La Bande Dessinée. That means drawn strip, which is a more apt phrase, in my opinion, than either comics or graphic novels, since many drawn strips are neither comic nor novelistic. Skipping to the 20th century, we encounter France's one international sensation among graphic novels, the intrepid Tintin, the boyish reporter, crime-solver, and aficionado of plus-fours. Once again, author Hergé was technically not French, but from the French-speaking part of Belgium. I consider Tintin too big to be worth critiquing, but for the few of you who have never read him, please go forth and read, and pity yourself that Tintin was never a seminal influence on your childhood as he was on mine. In spite of Tintin's success, translations of American comics such as Mickey Mouse dominated the French market until Nazi occupiers and then post-war cultural chauvinists imposed laws limiting access to American publications. This forced the domestic industry to develop and mature. For a while, the French Catholic Church was a huge influence with its publication of wholesome magazines for children. This parallels the English experience of the very popular Dan Dare series, which had scripts written by the Reverend Chad Vara and was published by the Reverend Marcus Morris. It was during the turmoil of the late 60s that edgier content was introduced to French readers, and in the 70s and 80s, raunchy comics were somewhat superseded by the less sensational and more literate fare such as that drawn by artist Jacques Tardy. More about him in a moment. Let's look at some recently published works. Bourbon Island 1730 by Louis Trondheim and Olivier Apollodoru is a French graphic novel published in English translation in 2008. It tells the story of a French colony in the Indian Ocean making a rough transition from pirate hideout to remote outpost of French civilization. You might think the main characters would be the ornithologists, Chevalier Despont and Raphael Pomeroy, who hope to find the last of the Dodos. They are introduced first, after all, and it makes sense that the reader should view this island through their naive eyes. But the dodo is only one metaphor among many. The real story involves the struggle of the up-and-inners against the down-and-outers. This last includes pirates, ex-pirates, slaves, and ex-slaves. The picture drawn of this society is as ugly as a dead dodo. The ruling caste contains not a single person of nobility or wisdom. The governor's one enlightened gesture, amnesty for pirates, is contradicted by the continuation of slavery that makes the ruling class fearful, contemptuous, or patronizing. The local priest is especially vile, in keeping with French stereotypes. Meanwhile, the down-and-outers live chaotic, self-destructive lives. Cynicism reigns over all. When I say the picture drawn is ugly, I mean that literally. The artwork is a squiggly black line on white paper, Without a grayscale, let alone color, the frequently complex jungle scenes are a riot of confused lines. The chaos on the page mimics the chaos in the culture appropriately, but that didn't make it a fun read. I want to be careful not to be too negative. I have a history of poor visual comprehension. I'm famously bad at grocery shopping. It takes me forever to find items on crowded shelves. So I admit there may be a man who mistook his wife for a hat kind of thing going on with me. With that caveat, let me just say, I really hated the art. I am glad for the fresh view on the age of piracy. This story does not take place in the Caribbean Sea unlike every other pirate story I've ever read. I'll bet your knowledge of French colonial history is as spotty as mine and in need of filling out. It has been said that French graphic novels do the best job of combining adult themes with childish visuals. I'm not so sure. I would say Japan wins that contest. In any case, the anthropomorphic animals of Bourbon Island confused me. What are we to think of a dodo search conducted by a duck? Why should I empathize with the humanity of a slave who is really a talking bear in pants? On the other hand, Bourbon Island is so unusual, so free of the clichés of the graphic novels you find on the shelves of bookstores and libraries, I had to give it a mention. Now, let's turn our attention to a not-so-fresh face in French graphic novels. Jacques Tardy, T-A-R-D-I, is an author and illustrator of graphic novels whose work dates all the way back to the 1970s, a publisher called Fantagraphics Books has begun releasing English translations of several of Tardy's books, two of which I review today. These stories are a blend of science fiction and magical realism, but what astonishes is the setting. Paris of the fin de cycle, or turn of the century. These stories deliberately mimic the futuristic aesthetic of Jules Verne. In other words, this is steampunk before the word steampunk was invented. The most obviously Vernesque of Tardy's books is The Arctic Marauder. It tells the coincidence heavy tale of Jérôme Plumier, a bright but very young doctor aboard the ship L'Anjou when it happens upon a ghost ship improbably perched high atop a tall, thin iceberg. Plumier joins the boarding party, which finds all crew at their posts, but frozen to death. Suddenly, the Longjou explodes and sinks, leaving the relatively lucky boarding party to await rescue. I say this tale is coincidence-heavy, because it turns out that Plumier's eccentric uncle is behind all these events. Plumier's various adventures on the way to learning just what his uncle is up to forms the bulk of the story. So we get a good mystery, plus some retro-futuristic hardware straight out of 20,000 leagues under the sea, what we don't get is a satisfying ending. Tardy has completely botched the denouement, which left me scratching my head and wondering if there is a sequel. I've found no evidence that there is. Much more enjoyable are Tardy's Extraordinary Adventures of Adèle Blanc Sec, a female adventurer and crime solver, Besides being a woman in La Belle Époque Paris, Mademoiselle Blanc Sec is an unlikely crime solver because she is also an unscrupulous crime committer. That's what makes these stories so unusual. That and the flying dinosaurs. In the first adventure, a 136-million-year-old dinosaur egg hatches, and the emergent pterodactyl chick proceeds to terrorize Paris killing people at random. The cluelessness of the government officials provides plenty of entertainment, and nowhere in the cast of characters is there anyone sane, intelligent, and honorable. Honestly, I found the story a muddle and a mess. Most of the male characters were mustachioed and bowler-hatted and impossible to tell apart. I even confused Adele with another important female character. Uh, That one was probably my fault. In the end, I decided I really needed to read the whole first adventure twice to give it a chance. But no, I was still confused. Confused about exactly who had been killed and who had double-crossed whom and just exactly how it was that somebody could be linked telepathically to an extinct flying dinosaur. No matter. The story is loaded with French steampunk charm. And anyway, the second adventure, published in one volume with the first, is much less murky. There, Adèle Sec uncovers a sinister secret society worshipping an ancient Babylonian demon god. If you're worried about the elasticity of your patience or your credulity, you're in luck. The second adventure will stretch them much less than the first. The Extraordinary Adventures of Adèle Blancsecq, Volume 1, Peter over Paris, Yes, terror is spelled with an initial P. And The Eiffel Tower Demon came out in 2010 and were promised more. Volume 2 is slated to be published this fall. The artwork uses a limited color palette which effectively evokes old-time printing techniques. I should also mention the English translation by Kim Thompson, which is so naively transliterated I feared incompetence. But then, at one point, Adele literally says, it is to laugh, like an old Johnny Carson joke, and I suddenly knew it was all the product of a bizarre sense of humor. I can only wonder what wit is embedded in the original French text. There's also a movie version directed by Luc Besson, which was released on the continent and in the UK just about two weeks ago, but no announcement of a US release yet. If you love early steampunk or plucky french heroines or your name is amy h sturgis do check it out the last and best of my selection of graphic novels from france is called glacial period and it's by nicolas de crecy here the artwork appears to be watercolor on heavy textured paper Its pastels set a melancholy mood appropriate for a distant future Earth buried under the snows of a much colder climate. A team of historians are searching for artifacts from a lost civilization. They are led by the comically vain Gregor, who listens to no one except the beautiful young woman everyone is in love with named Juliet. Her father is funding the expedition. The main character, however, is a sentient creature named Hulk, that looks like a cross between a dog and a pig mainly because that's exactly what he is his role is to complain constantly about the cold and sniff out artifacts he can even date them precisely because his nose is genetically engineered to include a sensitivity to carbon 14. the team stumbles upon the musée du louvre which along with the rest of paris is emerging from the snows due to seismic activity Gregor and his main competitor, Joseph, strive to understand the artwork they find. Each desperately wants to control the narrative of the research, and each knows that the first narrative will have an advantage. It's comical to watch them spin their bizarre art theories with the most minimal evidence, asserting nonsense with supreme confidence. The odd prevalence of nudity in the images inspires them to their best, which is to say, worst, ideas. Is this a commentary on the state of art criticism today? I'm not sure, but it may be relevant that this graphic novel is one in a series commissioned by the Louvre. The story takes a surprisingly magical turn halfway through when the artwork starts talking. There's an appendix in the back that some will appreciate very much. It lists every museum piece depicted in the book, and there are a lot of them. The English translation of Glacial Period is by Joe Johnson and was published in 2006. This is one you're sure to enjoy. That's it for this time. Au revoir, mes amis!
1: Hey, go! Cool. Frederick, sir, thank you very much. It's funny, this week, for some reason, or just the way things go, I didn't have a fact article. I, you know, I'd only got a story to play, really. Yeah. And at the last minute, there, uh, Fred again, another crew member, saved the day and dropped in his little segment. So, Fred, thank you so much. Anybody, just out of curiosity, you know, while we're kind of, like I say, we're a bit short on the ground of fact, contact, cont- contact content. If anyone's got an idea for a fact, you know, if they want to be like a regular little part of the show, you know, if you've got a good idea drop us a line, starshipsover at gmail.com I'll repeat that email address because I didn't realise, I don't think Josh has actually realised as well, we haven't got our email address on the front of the website and I get loads of like emails saying Tony I've had to come through this back door to get in touch with you, so it is starshipsover at gmail.com for any information, news or gossip you would like to have with myself so next up is Main Fiction, and it's by Lucius Shepard. Now, please, if you haven't listened, to Lucius Shepard, or there's a great interview. I kind of haven't got a clue where it is, but somewhere back in the archives, where and it's actually one of the interrogations where you know I asked those fifteen questions. You know, I might actually start them up again. I haven't played any of them for a while. And actually, truth be told, I'm sure I've still got a couple. <laughs> <laughs> how responsible and like... What a, oh, you know what I mean? Just... Oh, forgot them. Anyway, go back and have a listen to Lucius Shepard as he kind of... We do the 15 questions, you know. And it just... Bless him. He just didn't like the kind of 15 questions. It just... It wasn't... You know, an interview kind of style wasn't Lucius's thing. You know, and you kind of read them and just... Or you listen to it and it's just like a couple of word answers and stuff like that. And yet, when I said, Lucius, thank you very much, then it just kicked off. And, you know, he said, so so how... You know, what are you doing, Tony? And it was then that kind of the interview you just saw that the chat just took you know went away and it was just eye opening. Do you know what I mean? It was just excellent. So do go back and have a listen to that if you haven't listened to that 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 interview. This story is narrated by. Michael Hoffa Michael is a music teacher over there in the USA So d- doing great things out with all that kind of stuff Michael, thank you so much He did this because we needed like a, a bit of a Russian accent And you know what I mean The kind of few and far between them When on the rating side of things So Michael, I'm just so pleased you stepped up to the mark sir, And did this, thank you so much You will be getting, as usual <laughs> Some more work So the Starship Sova And Oh, damn it <laughs> That's never going to leave us there. Starship Super is very proud to present Larissa Musov by Lucius Shepard.
3: Her beauty was so extreme, such blonde Slavic cheekbone perfection. Everyone who saw her was forced to take note of it and, rather than admiring her, they were inspired to seek out her flaws, to say she was a bit shorter than optimum or too full-figured for her height or that her eyes, a pale chartreuse, were set a smidgen too widely apart, and that her lower lip had the merest touch of superfluous fullness. Itemized, then, added up in total, she rated a B minus, a ten point six, let's say, on the scale by which supremely beautiful women are judged. This process of itemization, a process of which Larissa was aware, created a gulf between men and herself that made possible certain unique resolutions, enabling things to be left unsaid that were typically the subject of negotiation, and permitting things that often went unspoken to be discussed openly. When I was little girl, she told me once, when we still lived in Moscow, Andropov would stop by my father's apartment. Do you know Andropov? Yuri Andropov, he was premier after Brezhnev. Big fat guy. Not so fat as Brezhnev, but still, he was very fat. He would come to our apartment and sit in my father's chair and put me on his knee, like so. She straddled the arm of an easy chair, facing its back, and glanced at me over her shoulder. It was uncomfortable... But he would say how pretty I was and move his knee, you know, up and down, up and down. I'd start to like the feeling I get. She made an amused noise and sat normally in the chair. Did he intend it? I asked. I mean, do you think he knew his behavior was inappropriate? She shrugged. All men wish to be inappropriate, but this is not important. He stole nothing from me. He would tell me stories. I think now they were true. They all take place in huge room, an underground room bigger than a city, with machines and laboratories, but no walls dividing them. And always there were prisoners. Hundreds of prisoners. You remember any of the stories? Not so much. Terrible things were happening. Bloody things. They scare me. I don't like to hear them. He's telling you horror stories at the same time he's trying to turn you on. Where was your father all this time? It's never just Yuri, you understand. He brings guys with him. They're scientists like my father. They go in the kitchen and scribble on paper and yell at each other. So, these occasions. They're basically a dodge that allowed the leader of the Soviet Union to be alone with you, so he could molest you? Maybe. I don't know. It didn't feel like he was molesting me. I was very sad when Yuri died, but then I learned to give myself pleasure... So it's okay. Larissa recognized the commodity of her beauty and traded upon it with skill and aplomb. She had dated movie stars and financiers. She made use of these connections and lived well. The astonishing thing was being so beautiful did not appear to have weakened her psychologically. Perhaps this could be attributed to her Russianness. She tried to explain to me what it was to be Russian, but I was too wrapped up in estimating my chances with her to pay close attention. In every apartment in Moscow, no matter how poor, she said, is enormous piece of furniture. A china closet, a thing like a miniature city full of plates and precious things. mementos, heirlooms, photographs. It's bigger than anything else in the place. I used to think this was because we love the past. Now, I... I believe it's because there is something granite in our souls that loves memorials and tombs. When I first saw her, I thought she was a hooker. A reasonable assumption, since she was hanging out at The Room, a Hollywood lounge club, with four women who were, according to friend Stan Reese, high-priced call girls. Stan had recently sold a screenplay, his third, and was celebrating. I had been in L.A. for three and a half years and sold nothing, So letting me be seen with him was, for Stan, a conspicuous act of charity. We went over to the sofa grouping where the women were seated. Stan started talking with one of them, whom he'd met at a party. The women studied me with cool appraisal, making me feel ill at ease out of my league. I imagine they knew everything about me. The thickness of my wallet, the size of my dick. It was like being stared at by five predators who had judged you unpalatable. Larissa, sitting closest to me, asked what I did for a living. I told her, with a display of attitude, that I was an unsuccessful screenwriter. "'Don't let him kid you,' Stan said. "'This guy's gonna have massive heat around him before long. He's a fantastic writer!' "'You have project?' Larissa asked me. "'Not yet,' I said. "'Not with a studio, but I'm working on something good, I think.' I told her about the screenplay a thriller concerning descendants of the Donner Party, while the background music went from Sinatra to Kraftwerk to King Crimson, and the dim track lighting waxed and waned. She interrupted me from time to time, asking questions in a throaty contralto. They were, for the most part, intelligent questions. I became entranced by her and extended the conversation by inventing side characters with subplots. She wore a cocktail dress that shimmered blackly whenever she crossed her legs or leaned forward to have a sip of her drink. Her pale skin seemed to hold more of the light than did any other surface. Her narrow chin and delicately molded jaw emphasized the fullness of her mouth and lent her face an otherworldly fragility, a quality amplified by those strange yellowish eyes. Yet I had the sense that this was illusory, that she was anything but fragile. Two of the women went to dance, and a third drifted to the bar. Stan and his friend migrated to one of the private rooms, leaving me alone with Larissa. There was still a lot of small town left in me. I wasn't used to dealing with women like her, and her physical presence overpowered me. Losing my natural restraint, I inquired as to her price and availability. Her face remained impassive, and she asked how much money I had. Not enough, I said. She smiled, an expression that developed slowly, and nodded as if in approval. This is a very good answer, very smart. I wasn't trying to be smart. That makes it even better answer. She handed me a gold lighter shaped like a cricket, and I lit her cigarette. A stream of smoke occulted her. Tonight I am not working, she went on, but you must call me. Tomorrow is no good. I have business. Another day. I would like to read your script and talk more about the movies. She refused to speak about her mother. The lady was dead, I assumed, or else had abandoned her daughter to the care of her husband, a scientist who could be cold and distracted for months at a time. She wouldn't say much about her private life, either. I never understood whether the people she brought home, both men and women, were friends or lovers. My confusion in this regard was intensified by the fact that I never understood her relationship with me, I was in love with her, but it was not the kind of love that breaks your heart. So many things were unstated between us, and there were so many unknowns. It was similar to a crush you might have on an actress, a person you know from screen roles and the tabloids, about whom you have gleaned scraps of information that raise more questions than they answer. My emotions were safeguarded by a built-in temporality. I realized our movie would soon end. When she was eleven, her father was sent to work at a secret Soviet city inside the Arctic Circle, a vast factory-like habitation, without a name or a pass, where weapon systems and space technology were developed. She was one of approximately forty children who were posted to the city along with their parents, but she made no real friends among them. They were closely surveilled, and, though the environment bred countless illicit adult affairs, it was not conducive to friendship." A bright child, she took refuge in her studies and became interested in anthropology, especially as related to the nomads upon whose hunting ground the city was situated. Her attempts to study them were hampered by the soldiers who escorted her on field trips. When we entered their camps, they would stop talking, she said. Sometimes we surprised them, and they would hide things from our eyes, talking them under a blanket or inside their coats. I found designs cut in the ice... "'that are reminding me of Mayan calendars, you know, like wheels. "'They have been defaced, so I could not make accurate sketch. "'I asked them about the designs, and they look at me with amused expressions, "'as if they knew something valuable, something I could never know. "'How'd you get rid of the soldiers?' I asked. "'Or were you able to?' "'Eventually. "'My father says it's too dangerous to visit them alone, "'but they are not dangerous.' You see, soldiers have put him in a camp and take their weapons. That way they don't tell anyone about city. The camp is nicer than Gulag, more like reservation, but there are fences. Now, they are no longer nomads. They are prisoners because they cannot hunt, they lose their spirit. Each winter, many die. The women prostitute themselves to soldiers. Their birth rate is in decline. She made a rueful face. It is very bad, so I stop visiting. When I'm 15, I'm bored and I lose my virginity. I'm not serious about the boy. The experience was only clinical, and I start to have sex with other boys. Soon I'm bored with that, but the boys talk about me and my father hears. He beats me, he drinks, he weeps. For a few days it's awful. Then he comes to me and says he has wangled permission for me to visit the camp alone. I'm not interested in nomads anymore, but he makes me go. Worrying about me, he claims, is interfering with his work. It's like he prefers me to be in danger than to sleep with boys. I could see she was tired of talking, but I kept asking questions, prolonging the contact. This had become one of our patterns. She told me she was gone to the camp every day for a couple of hours and had become friends with the shaman who revived her interest in anthropology, teaching her the rudiments of his craft, and explaining that the wheel-like markings she had noticed were ritual in nature, designed to attract game to the camp. He hinted that he was contriving a ritual that would significantly improve the nomads' lives. Then, one afternoon, she found the camp abandoned. The nomads were gone. Shortly thereafter... "'The project on which her father had worked was shut down, and they were sent back to Moscow. "'Not long after that, the city itself shut down. "'Huh, I guess the government decided to get rid of them,' I said. "'With the city no longer a priority, they didn't want the expense of guarding them, "'and they couldn't afford to have them running around loose. "'There's a frozen pond at the edge of camp,' she said. "'When I go to look, I see designs carved on ice. "'Every inch of the ice is carved.' There are four wheels at the corners. They are scratched out. And then little houses, like the houses in camp. In the middle of the pond, there are carvings of animals. Foxes and deers. All kinds. In the middle of the animals, there is a circle, and inside the circle is nomad family. Yeah? I said. So? So? It is a shaman's ritual. They are gone. You're saying like a hole open in the world, and they crawled through. She glared at me, as if daring me to deny it. Well, that's taken the hopeful view, I said. At the time we met, things were going badly for me. My bank account was dwindling, my connections weren't returning calls, and I was considering a move back east, taking a technical writing job I'd been offered. Better that, I told myself, than this ragged coat sleeve of a life, sharing a two-bedroom West Hollywood roach ranch with an out-of-work set designer who smoked meth on the couch and talked semi-coherently about using our apartment as a model for the anteroom of hell in his film version of Dante's Inferno. The reason I hadn't called Larissa, I was in the grip of depression and saw no point in acquiring a new friend. Then one morning, the meth had appeared in my doorway— dropped a scrap of paper bearing Larissa's name and address onto my desk, and said in a terrible Russian accent, "'Please tell Paul to come visit me. I am at home today.'" "'When did she call?' I asked. "'A minute ago.'" "'She wants you to bring the script you talked about. She claims she may be able to get you some.'" He waggled his fingers and sang the last word. "'Money!' I glanced at the address. It was an expensive one. Why didn't you tell me she was on the phone? You told me to say you were working. If you want your basic message personalized, you'll have to give specific instructions. He was tweaking, spoiling for a fight. A good time, I thought, to take a drive. The house in which Larissa lived was a hilltopper in Topanga, a multi-leveled architectural abomination that, come the apocalypse, would likely resemble a flying saucer crashed into a postmodern church. A molded concrete deck ran the length of its steel and glass façade, bolted to the hill by cantilevers that sprouted from massive piers far below, and divided into two walkways, one leading around to the main entrance and the access road... The other extending farther out over the canyon, supporting a narrow azure pool shaped like a capital I. It belonged to a man named Misha Bondarchuk, for whom Larissa served as a conduit and a scout for potential investments. I saw him perhaps half a dozen times in all the months I knew her. He was blandly handsome, tanned and fit, with razor-cut black hair and sported a large diamond and emerald earring. His uncle had been president of the Ukraine prior to the collapse of the Soviet Union and Misha had since come into possession of the Ukraine's oil leases. I doubted this signaled other than blind luck on his part. As far as I could tell, he had the IQ of wheat, and spent his time skiing or at discos or with one or another of his Korean girlfriends. He displayed a familiarity with Larissa, pats on the ass, casual caresses, that seemed to reflect a past intimacy But she denied they had ever had a relationship, acting as if the prospect disgusted her, and said that was simply Misha's style. He only liked Korean women, and her association with him was strictly business. The day she called... She kissed me on both cheeks at the door and led me into a sunken living room with china-white carpeting and sofas rising from it like sculpted snow and a spiral stainless steel staircase like the skeleton of some curious Arctic beast corkscrewing up past obsidian objects to art and teak bookcases filled with fake books without titles made of black marble. It might have been a set for a 60s TV show about jet-set spies. Larissa flung herself down on a sofa and began reading. I went out onto the deck, leaned on the railing, and watched the progress of a small brush fire atop a nearby ridge. The smell of burning cleared the vapors of West Hollywood from my head. It was so quiet I could hear wind chimes from one of the houses below. I lay down on a deck chair, thinking that was one great thing about being rich. You got to lower the volume whenever you wanted. I fell asleep in the sun and had a dream filled with noise, with the shouts of corner boys, traffic sounds, the meth-heads' dry-throated cackle. Larissa shook me awake and sat on a deck chair beside me. I had to shield my eyes against a glare to see her. "'This is very, very good,' she said, gesturing with the script. "Too art-house for studio, but it can be art-house hit, and it's inexpensive to shoot. "'I think we will put the money to make this movie.' I was pleased, but expressed my doubts that somebody in her line of work could pull the funding together. "'You think I am a prostitute?' she said. "'I am not prostitute. I was playing a joke on you.' She briefed me on her relationship with Misha and said that he was in Russia, but would return in two months. I explained that two months might as well be two years unless she could give me an advance, and that if I didn't get out of my apartment, I might be up on murder charges. I'd had more solid deals go south, and I laid it on thick.' "'She mulled this over and then led me into a wing of the house "'that contained an apartment with its own kitchen. "'You can stay here,' she said. "'It's a quiet place for work. No one bothers you.' "'I wondered why a beautiful woman who lived alone would be so trusting. "'Perhaps she didn't view me as a threat. "'I found this notion rankling, "'but hers was the best offer I'd had since my arrival in L.A. "'On my way out, making small talk, "'I asked why she had been keeping company with prostitutes.' It was a dumb question, but I was attempting to disguise the eagerness I felt over moving in and might have said anything. They are friends, nice girls, and they make it safe for me to flirt with guys. I love to flirt. She opened the door and kissed me on both cheeks. Other stuff with guys eats not so good for me. Larissa was an astute businesswoman, and she understood the industry. After I had finished a second draft of the script, she informed me that she was bringing in a director to work with me on subsequent drafts. Naturally, I objected, but she held firm, and the director she brought in, Vic Echeverria, had made a movie I liked and proved helpful. He was a paranoid little man with an alert, fox-like face and a bald spot, always worrying about the money, about when we would start principal photography, about whether the Russian mafia was involved, but he had good ideas, and together we gradually beat the script into shape. The contracts, which Larissa herself drew up, were generous and precise, and the actors she suggested for various parts a mix of older A-list people and new talent, were suited to the roles and approachable. Yet for all her business acumen, she was, to my way of thinking, utterly irrational in every other area of her life. Her grandmother, her sole living relative, her father having succumbed to a peculiarly Russian fate involving a mysterious boating accident and poor hospital care, still lived in Moscow and each month sent Larissa a package of videotapes. Some tapes consisted of nothing but swirling masses of color and New Age music. Larissa swore they had healing properties. Others were shows hosted by psychics who made prophecies regarding aliens, second comings, and subterranean civilizations that outstripped those of the wildest tabloids. From these, she derived much of her information about America. She was convinced, for example, that a gigantic serpent lay coiled about an egg in a cavern far below the Smithsonian Institution, and that the hatching of the egg would bring about the end of days. She believed anything that supported the existence of magic. When Misha returned from Russia with his latest Korean girlfriend and his bodyguards, stopping by the Topanga house on the way to his place in Malibu, she pulled me aside and asked, "'What is it about Korean women that men find so attractive?' Do they have special sexual techniques? Beats me, I said. Most grand women I know work in the convenience stores. She looked disappointed. But I've heard that some of them can change into animals during sex, I said. Is it true? That's what I hear. She appeared to file this information away. Must be smelly animal, she said. This one wears too much perfume. That day marked a shift in our relationship, though I wasn't altogether sure why. Misha spoke to Larissa alone, while the Korean girl paced the deck and the bodyguards sprawled on the white sofas, watching soccer on the big screen TV. I hovered at the edge of the living room, betwixt and between. After 15 minutes, Misha came out of the room that Larissa used as an office, unbuckling himself from a bulletproof vest. He grinned at me and said, You believe it? All the time I'm in Russia. I'm cursing this face. I can't wait to take it off. But when I get back to the States, I forget I'm wearing it. For want of anything better to say, I opine that these were dangerous days in Moscow. Galboys and Indians, man. He fanned the hammer of an imaginary six-gun. So you're a writer, huh? You're going to make me big movie? He noticed Larissa, who had followed him out of the office, and went to her, arms outspread. Russian women, he said, and gave her a smooch for my benefit. They are too beautiful. She pushed him away, a gesture that was not entirely playful, and enlisted my hostility towards Misha. So beautiful your heart breaks to see them. He adopted a clownishly tragic face and clutched his chest. The expression lapsed, and he spoke in his native tongue to the bodyguards, who stood and solemnly adjusted the hang of their jackets. Okay, I am going, he said, starting for the door, giving me a wave. So long, Mr. Reiter. Paul. I said sternly. He shot me a blank look. My name's Paul. Paul, 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 Paul. He repeated the name several more times in different tones of voice. Okay, he said, smiling. See you later, Mr. Paul. He went toward the door, then swung around and made a pistol with his thumb and forefinger. Paul, right? He laughed. I remember next time. Once he was out of earshot, I remarked that he came off like a serious asshole. He is Russian men," she said flatly, as if that were explanation enough. Come on, I show you something. On the computer screen in her office was the record of a money transfer in the amount of $15 million to the account of Cannibal Films, our production company. I thought you were only going to ask for ten, I said. Ten, fifteen, it's same for Misha. "'With fifteen, we can shoot period scenes. "'They are still in the script, right?' "'I was planning to cut them, but... but yeah.' "'Delighted by how easily the project had come together, "'I made a clumsy move to hug her. "'She kissed me lightly on the mouth and eased out of the embrace. "'Get to work,' she said. "'We both got to work. "'Nick Echeveria and I banged and kneaded and argued over the script.' and Larissa initiated the casting process, arranged for camera rentals and such. Her goal, to start principal photography in three to four months, seemed unreasonable, but she put in fourteen-hour days, cut her social life to the bone, and it began to seem doable. Despite this, we spent more time together than we had. We held frequent conferences and fell into the habit of taking our morning coffee on the deck dallying for an hour or two before getting into the day, talking about this or that, anything except the business at hand. Larissa, never a morning person, came to these breakfasts sleepy-eyed and rumpled, dressed in a short silk robe, loosely belted, that offered me the occasional view of a breast or her inner thigh. She wore no panties. I recalled what she had said about loving to flirt, but rejected the idea that she was flirting with me and chose to believe that her immodesty was due to sleepiness or that she was naturally immodest. My frustration grew, and since I didn't feel secure enough in my position to bring a woman to the house, I became increasingly fixated on Larissa. I thought about asking her to cover up, but I didn't want to offend or deprive myself of the meager gratification afforded by these intermittent glimpses. One morning she did not come to breakfast, and, after she hadn't put in an appearance all day, I went to her suite of rooms in late afternoon and knocked. Receiving no response, I poked my head in and called to her. No answer. I went along the corridor and found her sitting cross-legged on her bed, naked to the waist, "'wearing a pair of slacks. "'The drapes were drawn, permitting a seam of light to penetrate, "'casting the remainder of the room in shadow. "'An open bottle of vodka rested on the night table. "'She had an empty glass in her hand. "'It looked as though she had decided to go on a bender "'in the midst of getting dressed. "'I asked if she was all right, and she said, "'Oh, Paul, I cannot talk now. "'What's wrong?' I asked, "'thinking it must have to do with the movie.' She stared at me bleakly, then lowered her head and shook it slowly back and forth, her hair curtaining her face. I turned to go, and she said, "'Wait!' She held out the glass. "'Bring me some ice, please?' When I returned from the kitchen with her ice, she was still sitting on the bed, struggling to put on a blouse, unable to fit her arm into the sleeve. "'Shit!' she said, and crumpled the blouse, tossed it to the floor." I handed her the glass, and she slopped vodka into it. You won't drink? Come, you must drink with me. She pointed to a tray of glasses atop a coffee table that fronted a sofa. We drink to the movies. A band-aid on the inside of her elbow had come partly unstuck. I asked if she had cut herself. I am giving blood each month. She tried to make the band-aid stick, gave up, and pulled it off. She looked down at her arm, which was no longer bleeding, and giggled. His rare charitable impulse. I sat on the foot of the bed. With a drunken show of painstaking care, she plucked out an ice cube and planked it into my glass. I had trouble keeping my eyes off her chest. To our little movie, she said, and we drank. It's still on, the movie? Yes, of course, why not? "'Then tell me what's wrong. "'It's too depressing. "'The bank has failed. "'My grandmother has lose all her money.' "'Relieved that it wasn't our bank, I asked what had happened, "'but she may not have registered the question. "'The bank president,' she said mournfully, "'he has killed himself.' "'Jesus, that's too bad.' She waved in exaggerated fashion, as though hailing a cab. No, no, it's okay. They make him kill himself. I tried to imagine what Moscow must be like, and suggested she wire money to her grandmother. She told me she had taken care of that, but said that her grandmother was anxious and needed someone to help her through this time. Why don't you fly home? We can spare you for a week or so, I said. Movie is not keeping me here. Is Misha, fucking son of bitch, Russian bastard. He say if I go, no movie. Always he wishes to control me. I didn't know what could be done about Misha. She poured us both another vodka and we drank in silence. Anyway, she said glumly, air on plane is not fit to breathe. She heaved a mighty sigh that set her breast to wobbling and stared at them as if she had just noticed they were there. I can do magic, she said brightly, glancing up at me. Want me to show you? Yeah, sure. You don't believe. I know. You're too busy looking at my tits. She cupped her hands beneath her breasts and wigwagged them. But while you look, I can disappear. Poof! I was annoyed with her for teasing me, but I let it slide. Like the nomads, I said. Exactly. He's the same trick. Energy drained from her. She slumped and hung her head again and then began to wrestle with the top button of her slacks, but couldn't get it undone. I was startled to see tears in her eyes. Help me, please, she said. I want to sleep. I helped her off with the slacks touching her skin no more than was necessary. As I moved to pull the sheet over her, she hooked her arms behind my neck and gave me a grave, assessing look that I recognized for an invitation, or at least as the prelude to one. I let the moment slip by. She rolled onto her side, drew her knees up into the fetal position, and passed out. The next morning I was on the deck, gazing across the fog-bound canyon, listening to the drips and plops the remnants of an early morning drizzle, when Larissa walked up and pressed herself against me in a sisterly embrace. You're a nice guy, she said, her face buried in my shoulder. I'm sorry for what I did. I unpeeled from her and said venomously, I'm not a nice guy, okay? I could have raped you last night, and you know what? I think I could have lived with myself. That's the only reason I didn't fuck you. Because I don't want to know that about myself. I'm not prepared to go there just yet. Rape? What are you talking about? That's what it would have been. You were totally out of it. You run around here half naked like I'm some kind of fucking eunuch and... I gestured in frustration. Forget it! She folded her arms and, with a puzzled look, said, You can fuck me if you want. It was as if she were saying, Didn't you know that? What's wrong with you? I had no idea how to respond. I fuck guys, she went on. Girls, too. I cannot manage emotional response, but I like you, Paul. If this is a problem between us, you can fuck me. At that moment, the gap between us seemed wider than could be explained by a cultural or a gender divide. What is the big deal? this, she indicated her body, it's nothing. You think I'm so beautiful, maybe with me it's better? Maybe you hear music and feel things you don't feel with other women? For me, it's only sex. Sometimes it's currency, sometimes it's for pleasure, sometimes for friendship. I can't help if for you it's more. A grinding sound arose from the fog, sputtered, and died. Then it started up again. Maybe I'm being naive, I said. "'Yes,' I think, she said after a considerable pause. "'But you're a nice guy. Believe it.' Larissa acted as though nothing had changed between us, and I suppose nothing had. She continued to wear her robe to breakfast, continued her casual displays of skin. That pissed me off, but I got over it. I concluded that this was her way of letting me know she remained available, and that my problem wasn't her problem.' The idea that I might be insufficiently worldly to take advantage of the situation, or that I was too much of a wimp, bothered me. Yet, whenever I determined to make a grab for her, something held me back. I attributed impossibly subtle manipulative skills to her. Perhaps, I thought, she had perceived a flawed trigger in my psychological depths, and understood that by offering herself, she would neutralize my desire. At length, I decided I was simply a romantic chump where she was concerned, and that I had rendered her unattainable by demanding something of her that she could not provide. Echeverria went off to the Sierra Nevadas to scout locations. I gave the script a final polish. Larissa stayed on the phone until late in the evening, going out only for business meetings and, judging by the band-aids on her arm, to give blood. On more than a few occasions, I overheard her speaking in Russian to someone. Her side of these conversations ranged in tone from pleading to infuriated, and once she used a Russian epithet she had taught me. Zalupa. Dickhead. After one such call, she stomped about the house, muttering, picking up books and statuettes as if intending to throw them, satisfying the urge by slamming them down. We were mere weeks away from starting the picture, and I didn't want to jinx the project by asking whether the relationship between her and Misha was deteriorating. I put my blinders on and tried not to dwell on the thousand things that could go wrong. I returned from a walk one evening to find an extra car parked out front and one of Misha's bodyguards, a slight blonde guy with a pleasant, finely boned face, standing in the living room watching a mixed martial arts fight on the TV. I peeked into Larissa's office. It was empty, and I asked the bodyguard It was empty, and I asked the bodyguard where she was. Busy meeting, he said without turning from the bloody figures on screen. Where are they? He smiled and said he didn't know. The smile made me uneasy, and I started along the corridor towards Larissa's rooms. The bodyguard intercepted me. Private meeting, he said. I tried to push past him and wound up flat on my back, with his hand gripping my throat. He helped me up, asked if I was okay, and steered me back into the living room. I sat on a sofa, feeling impotent and agitated. What's going on? I asked. The bodyguard flicked his fingers at the TV, where one fighter was celebrating a knockout. Kin Shamrock, he said admiringly. He's a blood-ass motherfucker. Twenty minutes later, Misha came along the corridor. He was buttoning a shirt, carrying a jacket draped over one arm. I couldn't take my eyes off him, quivering like a hound that has been forced to heal, but I don't think he even gave me a glance. He stood in the foyer, combing his hair. The bodyguard went to join him. They left through the front door, and I sprinted down the corridor. The sheets were half off Larissa's bed, the pillows scattered on the floor. I heard the shower running and called out, asking if she was all right. She said she was fine. When she stepped out of the bathroom, wearing a terrycloth robe, her hair turbaned in a towel, she seemed composed, but her cheek was red and swollen, and there was a tiny cut at the corner of her upper lip. She sat down on the sofa and lit a cigarette with her gold cricket lighter. I wanted to ask what happened, but I knew and I told her she should call the police. You cannot hurt Misha that way. She had a hit of the cigarette, exhaled and tapped the lighter rhythmically against the glass surface of the coffee table as if sending an SOS. "'Best thing to do is nothing. "'Sooner or later, someone will take a big bite out of Misha. "'He's too stupid to be in position of power. "'You've got to call the cops. "'If you won't, I will. "'There's no telling what he'll do next.' "'He has done what he wanted. "'He's humiliated me.' that satisfies him. Now he will leave me alone for a while. She gazed out the window at the twilight cavern and said distractedly, don't worry, we'll be all right. You want to do something? Be a nice guy. Make some tea. Her behavior confounded me. A woman who cried when she couldn't undo a button and yet took rape and stride who viewed it as a humiliation for which the remedy was tea and cigarettes. Maybe it was a Russian thing, but I couldn't get my head around it. I was disappointed in her, almost angry, as if she hadn't lived up to a standard I set for her, some special measure like the scale by which her beauty was appraised. I began spending more time away from the house, washing my hands of the situation, telling myself that I couldn't protect her, though my withdrawal was actually a petty punishment, an expression of my disapproval, and didn't last for long. My work on the script was done, at least for the moment, and the house was a mess. Wires and lights everywhere. We were using it as one of the locations. So I seized the opportunity to renew friendships and caught a couple of movies. Then one night Larissa nabbed me as I was heading out and asked me to have a drink with her. She wanted to celebrate the start of principal photography, now eight days away, and was afraid we might not have time later. She was about to get very busy on the production side of things. It was too windy on the deck, so we went into her bedroom and sat on the sofa and drank vodka martinis, slipping back into our relationship without awkwardness. She talked about the people she had associated with in Moscow, citizens of the new Russia, crazy musicians and charlatan poets and idiot actors, her face glowing with fond recollection, leaning forward to touch me on the knee, the arm. I tried to keep her talking, watching the light shift across her satiny blouse, listening to her breathy inflections and odd tonal shifts, like someone hitting the stops on the upper register of a bass clarinet. She told me that she had been a production assistant on two movies in Moscow, something I hadn't known, and this had given her the expertise needed to produce our movie. It was a dream come true for her, she said, speaking about the quality of the actors and the director she was working with now. Your script is the heart of the movie, she said. They are forgetting this in Hollywood. Everything is explosion, car chase, or else it is farce. They no longer care about story, but you have given me such a brilliant script, a beautiful story. I am so grateful to have met you. I was made confident by her praise, infected by her passion for the movie, and a little desperate because I realized this might be my last, best chance to draw her into a deeper involvement. She wasn't startled when I kissed her. She seemed to want it as much as I did. We moved from the sofa to the bed without a word exchanged. She was a fierce lover. She hissed in delight. She whispered Russian endearments. And she came almost at once, her nails pricking my back, heels bruising my calves, holding me tightly while she let out a series of low, shuddering cries. Then she pushed me onto my back and mounted me. Her hips rolled and twisted, teasing one moment and frenzied the next. The sight of her above me, breasts swaying, her hair flying, It was sublimely sexual. Yet when we were done, when she sat on the edge of the bed sipping her martini, I realized I had been taking mental snapshots of her filing them away under the most beautiful woman I ever fucked, and that her ferocity had been technical, part of a design for pleasure. The relationship had not deepened. It was only sex, though I wanted to believe otherwise. You're disappointed, she said, looking down at me. Are you kidding me? No, you're disappointed, I know. She set down her glass and lay facing me. You did not hear music. You felt nothing new. No music, I said, giving in to her. But I maybe felt a couple of new things. She laughed and caressed my cheek. Min tell me I am great at six, and I think, so what? What do you mean? I enjoy it. I want Min to enjoy. "'I have good energy for sex. It's no big thing.' She rested her head in the crook of my shoulder. "'Do you remember I'm telling you about the shaman in the camp?' Uh "'Uh-huh. We were lovers. It was the only way I could get him to tell me things. After we have sex one time, he says, "'You don't have feelings for me.' I say, "'Sure I do.' And he says, "'You want to know what it is to have love feelings for a man?' So I tell him, ''Yes, okay. I think he'll teach me something if I go along.'' So he lays me down and rubs oil over my body. And spices too, maybe. It smells of spices. ''Sounds like a marinade,'' I said. Then he starts to sing. ''Very low, deep in his throat,'' she demonstrated. ''It's very hypnotic, and I'm getting drowsy. So drowsy I lose track of what is happening.'' Soon he's making love to me. It was amazing. It's like I hear the music. I'm feeling new things. I'm... I don't know the word. In another place? Transported, I suggested. Her brow furrowed. Okay, maybe. Afterward, I ask if I can go to that place with some other man. He doesn't know. If he performs the ritual some more, it's possible. But he's very busy. He's got no time. Later, he says. Then the nomads disappear, and there's no chance to perform the ritual again. He probably drugged you. Must be hell of a drug, she said, because I miss him forever. It takes me a year before I want sex with someone else. You think a drug can make you feel something so strong that you don't really feel? You don't even need drugs for that, I said. I was watching TV the following Sunday three days before we were to begin shooting, when the police arrived in force. They had a search warrant and asked if I knew where Misha and Larissa might be. I had no idea where Misha was, but I told them Larissa was probably asleep. They didn't appear to believe me and suggested I come down to Valley Division and answer some questions. During the questioning, I learned that Misha and Larissa had last been seen at a bar in Pacific Palisades. Misha's car had been found early that morning in a gully not far from the house, and there were signs of foul play, plenty of blood, too much blood to hope for survivors, yet no bodies. They asked about Misha's relationship with Larissa, about my relationship with Larissa, about people with Russian names whom I'd never heard of. After 45 minutes, they kicked me loose and told me to keep clear of the house until they were done collecting evidence. I checked into a hotel and called Echeverria and gave him the news. He kept saying, I knew something would fuck this up. It wasn't the kind of attitude I wanted to hear. I told him I'd contact him when I heard anything new and went down to the bar and drank myself stupid. I shed a few tears for Larissa, but not so many as you might expect, perhaps because I sensed that her tragedy had occurred long before I met her and, like Echeverria... I knew something bad was going to happen. I walked around for a week, feeling as if a hole had been punched through my chest. I missed being around her, talking to her. And then the police picked me up again, this time conveying me to an interrogation room in the Parker Center, with the walls a color of carbon paper, where I made the acquaintance of Detectives Jack Trombley and Al Witt, who were attached to the Homicide Special Unit of the LAPD. Witt! "'A cheerful, fit man in his thirties, dressed in jeans and a sports coat, "'offered me cigarettes, coffee, soda, and then said, "'So, did you do it?' "'Do what?' I asked. "'He looked to his partner, an older, thicker man, "'wearing the same basic uniform, and said, "'I don't think he did it. You try.' "'Did you do it?' asked Trombley. "'I glanced back and forth between them. "'I didn't do anything.' I'm not getting much, Trombley said. Inconclusive? asked Wit. Trombley nodded. If only he hadn't lied, huh? Wit eyed me sadly. You said you and the Russian babe were friends, but we got your DNA off her of sheets. We had sex one time, I said, but... One time. If it was me, you'd have to prime me off her. It was like no good with her or something? Wit asked. Not really, I said. It was... I don't know how to explain so you'd understand. Yeah, we're pretty dense. We might not get it. Wit thumbed through the case file. We found an older sample on the sheets. It belonged to Bondrachuk. That must be from the rape. Yeah, you said. Wit fingered the edge of a flimsy. Makes you wonder how come a woman who's been raped would hang on to the sheets. You'd think she'd throw them away or at least wash them. What's your point? Wit shrugged. It's just weird. He played with the papers for a second or two and then asked, what did you do with the money? The money? Boy, he's good, said Trombley. The $15 Wit Witt said. The budget for your movie. Where'd it go? It's not in the bank. Not in any Wells Fargo bank. Witt made a church and steeple with his fingers. Here's how I read it. Larissa was planning to set you up for Bonderchuck's murder and scoot with the fifteen mil. That's why she was sleeping on dirty sheets when he nailed her to implicate you. Maybe she's talked you into killing Bondarchuk for her. You caught onto her, chilled them both, and buried the money in an offshore account. Works for me, Trombley said. Need some tailoring, but we can make it fit. I couldn't kill Larissa, I said. Because you loved her? Love's right up there with greed as a motive for murder. Wit made a wry face. You're not going to tell us you didn't love her, are you? Yeah... "'I loved her, but you wouldn't... I... I know. We wouldn't understand.' Wit leafed through the file and pulled out a sheet of paper. "'Larissa Moisov, a.k.a. Larissa Shivitz. "'Suspicion of robbery, suspicion of fraud, suspicion of extortion. "'Here's a good one. Suspicion of murder. "'Lots of suspicion, hanging around your girlfriend, but she always skated. "'Is that what you loved about her?' "'They tag-teamed me for hours.' "'trying to wear me down to find cracks in my story, "'but I had no story to crack. "'Finally, Wit said, "'We like clearing cases around here, "'and you're looking pretty good for this. "'A guy like Misha?' I said. "'There must be dozens of people who wanted him dead. "'More than that, but they've all got alibis and a ton of money. "'You don't.' "'That night I sat in a hotel bar "'and worried whether the police would charge me. "'I drank too much and thought about Larissa.' Then I repeated the cycle. She hadn't talked much about the years in Moscow after her father died. I assumed it had been a struggle, and having no means of support, that she had done things she wasn't proud of. But hearing the specifics eroded what I believed to be true and raised unanswerable questions about her crimes. Had she been coerced? If so, by who and by what means? And had she intended to frame me? I wanted to deny it, clinging to the notion that we had been friends, yet it was as if each new thing I learned rendered her less visible, as if during the entire time I knew her, she had been gradually disappearing behind a smoke screen of facts. After a month, they let me back into the Topanga house to collect my possessions. I no longer feared that I would be charged with a double homicide." Though the case remained open, Larissa's death was on its way to becoming part of Hollywood lore, and I was close to signing a deal that would guarantee production of the Donner Party's script and allow me to direct a picture based on a script I would write about the murders. Very little excites America more than does the mysterious death of a beautiful woman, especially a woman who herself poses a mystery. Photographs of Larissa were splashed on tabloid covers and featured on TV. It was said she had done porn in Russia, that she had slept with Gorbachev, that she was a descendant of the Romanovs. A 2020 special was in the works. On the advice of counsel, I turned down requests for interviews. Save it for the script, my agent told me. I packed quickly, oppressed by the house, but before leaving I asked the real estate agent to give me a minute to look around. I walked along the deck and then down the hall to Larissa's bedroom. The bedroom had been stripped, but her clothes were still in the closet, her toiletries in the bathroom, and a trace of her perfume lingered in the air. I sat on the sofa, indulging in nostalgia, remembering the moments, things spoken and unspoken. I glanced down at the coffee table. Sunlight applied a glaze to the glass surface, making it difficult to see, but when I leaned close I realized she had left me a message. That's how I interpreted the markings on the glass, though I recognize now that they may have been the work of idle hours, and I understand they were, in essence, the ultimate mystification of her life, a magical pass made by her disembodied hand that, literally or figuratively, caused her to vanish utterly behind a curtain of rumors and fictions, the final flourish of her disappearing act. At the time, however, I chose to take the hopeful view, I recalled how she had giggled and remarked sarcastically on the act of giving blood, blood she might have used to cover up a murder, and I also recalled things said about Misha, about me, all supporting the thesis that she had escaped, leaving behind evidence to implicate me to misdirect the police for a while, yet not enough to convict. Four wheels resembling Mayan calendars, now defaced by random scratches, were etched into the four corners of the glass. The greater portion of the surface was occupied by marks that appeared to represent the surrounding hills, a crude map of our section of the canyon, and there was a patch of tropical vegetation where the house should have been. I identified palms and banana trees. Inside a circle, dead center of the patch, was the figure of a woman, so carefully incised that I made out breasts and a smiling face, and a hand raised in salute. She was half-turned away from whomever she was signaling, like a beloved and gifted actress waving farewell to her audience, preparing to step through the hole she had opened in the world. (laughs) ¶¶
1: And there you go, don't forget. As usual, copyright is Lucia Shepherd. Okay, please go back and listen to that interview because I I really enjoyed that one. And a big thank you to Michael. Michael, thank you so much, sir. So we have, we're coming into How to Run a Con by Michael Swanick.
0: Hello, this is Darger. And I'm Surplus. And we're here to teach you How how to to Run run a Con. con. Today,
4: we're going to talk about Three Card Monty, the best-known crooked card game of
0: all time. Dealer sets up a card table and throws three cards face down atop it. One by one, he flips them over. Two black deuces and the queen of hearts. Then he deftly flips them back and, swiftly swapping the cards back and forth, challenges the onlookers to bet that they can pick out which card is the queen.
4: Find the lady, find the queen, five will get you ten, ten will get you twenty. Watch carefully, lad, the hand is quicker than the eye. You could do that for a living. I have. Now, you'll note that while the gambler's chances are only one in three of finding the card, he's being offered even odds. Already,
0: the house is ahead. And that's not even taking into account the fact that the dealer has complete control over the cards. If he wanted to, he could flip them all over to reveal three Seven of Diamonds.
4: So clearly, anyone willing to take a chance at all has the brains of a gerbil and the common sense of gravel. The challenge, then, is to get him to
0: bet every cent he has on a single turn of the cards. This is accomplished by having a shill in the crowd. The shill steps forward and bets a fiver. When he loses, he indignantly cries, Hey, let me look at that, and scoops up the queen. There's
4: nothing to be seen, of course. He lost fair and square. But as he returns the queen, he bends up one corner of the card so that the identity of the queen is self-evident. The
0: dealer appears not to notice this, or the wink which the shill gives the crowd. This time, the shill lays down a hundred dollars. He wins and strides off cockily, waving the money in the air. Now the game begins for real. Whoever muscles his way to the front first slaps down everything he's got. The cards whirl and the dealer delivers his hypnotic spiel.
4: We have a player. Five will get you ten. Ten dollars for five. Watch the cards. The hand moves quicker than the eye. Here's the queen and over she goes. She dances with one. She dances with his brother. Everybody dances. Everybody
0: wins. And make your pick. The mark confidently chooses the card with the turned up corner, which turns out to be not the queen. The dealer smoothed out the corner and turned up that of another card as he was manipulating them. Leaving the dealer richer and the mark considerably poorer.
4: Sometimes, however, it's a very thin line that separates a hustler and a mark. Sad but true. Canada Bill Jones was the greatest Monty Shark in history, a man who could make the cards sing. He was also a true gent who would impulsively give half his winnings to a nun simply because her need was greater than his. Unfortunately, He was also a compulsive gambler who would spend 70 hours at a sitting playing cards if that's what it took to lose it all. He was incapable
0: of leaving the table anything but broke. His friend George Duvall once said of him he loved gambling for its own sake just as the moralists love virtue for its own sake. Duvall once discovered him losing heavily in a faro game and begged him to quit saying can't you see the game is rigged? Canada Bill sighed and said Sure, I know it, George. But it's the only game in town, thus making a deathless contribution to the American language. <laughs> when
4: Canada Bill died, destitute, of course, one of his many friends, watching as his casket was lowered into the ground, offered to bet a thousand dollars at two to one odds that he wasn't in it. There were no takers. As another gambler present said, I've seen Bill get out of tighter holes than that
0: before. No one could ask for a more moving tribute. This is Daga, And I'm Surplus, teaching you... How, how to
4: run a con. con. Did you know that professional gamblers used to follow Canada Bill around from town to town?
0: Well, who could blame them? He was going to throw his money away anyway.
4: Yes. Better it went to friends than to strangers.
1: Michael, thank you so much. Finally... Good course here, Tales for Canterbury, an anthology all about, not all about, but you know, for the earthquake that happened in New Zealand. Please pop over there, there'll be a link on the site, you know, do your bit, do your thing, thank you so much. Tales for Canterbury is a short story
4: anthology from Random Static Press, edited by Anna Caro and J.C. Hart. All funds raised through the sale of ebook and print copies will go to the New Zealand Red Cross 2011 Earthquake Appeal. The anthology features stories by New Zealand and international authors including Neil Gaiman, Karen Healy, Gwyneth Jones, Jay Lake, Kat Connor, Helen Lowe, Sean Williams and more. For more information, visit
1: talesforcanterbury.wordpress.com And that is show 187. I hope you enjoyed it. Again, thanks go to Josh making it happen. Because we wouldn't have had a we wouldn't have had a ship, we'd have been sitting in our underpants. <laughs> doing bugger all. So there you go, Josh, thank you so much. Everyone, I hope you have a fine old time. And I'd just like to say, until next week, good night from me. Ooh.
4: survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic
0: judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Storchic Sulfur. A valuation procedure initiated. Double set for Airlock will be opened in